This morning's scripture is from Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25 in the NIV. And uh, it's in your pew Bible on page 955 and on the screen behind me. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother, Mary, was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. This is God's word. always a special privilege to uh, celebrate uh, new life through baptism, just a joy and uh, one of the highlights in ministry. Uh, Go ahead and keep your Bibles open to the book of Matthew. Uh, Also, if you're using the the Bible in the rack in front of you, again, that's on page uh, 955. There is uh, something I've been looking forward to happening this week for some time, not as significant as the recent birth of uh, our daughter, Uh, so nothing in that category, because I will get in big trouble when you find out what it is I've been anticipating. Uh, But I would be lying if I said I wasn't geeking out about the release of The Hobbit this uh, weekend in theaters. I've read the book twice uh, to my son Joshua and absolutely love Tolkien's imaginative world, the way that he can tell a story, uh, this unexpected journey that Bilbo Baggins goes on with uh, the wizard and the 13 dwarves uh, intent on reclaiming their lost home and treasure from the dragon's smog. Uh, there's something particularly gripping in, in, and powerful in telling a story that not only takes the characters off guard, but takes you as the reader off guard as well, uh, breaking our expectations. Well, we're not looking at The Hobbit this morning, but there is a a sort of unexpected journey uh, that we're going to watch uh, a man named Joseph go on in Matthew 1, 18 through 25. And if we slow down and follow the story carefully, we just might find ourselves on an unexpected journey of our own, having our categories rocked and our minds blown. Uh, And I say that kind of in jest, but only half in jest, because what we're going to find in this passage, quite beyond any of our expectations or even our ability to comprehend the whole thing, is that it takes a king who is both fully God and fully human to accomplish God's plan of salvation for the world. A king who's both fully God and at the same time fully human to accomplish God's plan of salvation for the world. Now, for some of us who have grown up in the church, we read uh, a story like this for now the hundredth time. And the familiarity of it uh, makes it anything but earth shattering for us. 
Uh, we hear it every year and so on. And I think that that's a tragedy uh, to become numb to a passage like this. When you consider how the whole plan of God for his creation and his plan of redemption, the whole thing hangs on this story. So my prayer uh, this morning for us is that God would enable us to get caught up in the story, into the scandal of it, not just the scandal of Mary's pregnancy, but the scandal that God would claim to come to earth in human form in order to be Savior and King. Moreover, my prayer is that our hearts would well up in faith and anticipation uh, of what God will yet do to establish his kingdom on this earth. So please uh, pray with me as we look at our Savior Jesus. Lord, uh, we do thank you again for uh, the gift of new life. We thank you, Lord, for uh, the gift of your kingdom that Jesus came to earth uh, to bring so long ago. Lord, thank you for your mercy. Thank you that you have not uh, turned your back on a hurting world, on a rebellious people, but that in love and in kindness you sent your Son. Lord, open our eyes to see him more clearly this morning, to see who he is and, and what he's come to do. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, if you're just joining us, we started our journey through the Gospel of Matthew just last week. Uh, looking at the genealogy in chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, where we met the king we've all been waiting for, the, the long-awaited king of Israel, and saw how the advent of Jesus, how his coming is the fulfillment of God's promises to Israel. And as such is therefore good news for the whole world, uh, because God is working out his plan uh, through them. Now, if we look at uh, verse 18 this morning... And how it begins, we see that Matthew is now going to tell us how the birth or the genesis, the origin of Jesus Christ came about. So if you're into superheroes and stuff, this would be Jesus's origin story, if you will. So that's what we look at at Christmas. But of course, as soon as we look at the story, we find out that the story isn't even about Jesus yet. It's about this man named Joseph, who is betrothed to Jesus' mother, Mary. Uh, the Gospel of Luke, a couple of books later, will tell Mary's version of the story. Matthew tells us Joseph's story. And as we read verse 18, we find that right out of the gate, there's something very unexpected, an unexpected problem in this story. Now, to capture something of the scandal of the problem, I'm going to leave out a phrase when I read these two verses. This is verses 18 and 19. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. So, again, leave that phrase out for a minute and allow yourself to get caught up in the scandal of what is happening here. Put yourself in Joseph's shoes for a moment. Now, in ancient Judaism, there were often three stages to a marriage. There was the arrangement, when the couple was usually quite young, the betrothal, which lasted about a year, until finally the marriage itself. Mary and Joseph are in the betrothal stage, uh, which is one scholar comments, 
means a great deal more than the engagement uh, that we're used to today. Betrothal was a legally binding contract signed by witnesses that could be broken only by a writ of divorce. Still, the marriage was not consummated until the wedding night when the bride ritually went from her parents' home to her husband's home. So when Mary shows up with a baby bump and Joseph sees this, you know, he's naturally quite suspicious. This was not part of the plan. He had pledged his life. He had pledged his honor, his affection, his commitment to this woman. And now it appears that she has been unfaithful carrying somebody else's child. Joseph's mind was literally blown and his expectations were crushed. What do you do with that kind of betrayal and disappointment? What good can possibly come out of that story? Well, Matthew tells us that Joseph's initial response was both righteous and merciful. He was a just or a righteous man, meaning that because of her apparent infidelity, uh, he could not go through with the marriage. But he was also merciful. Rather than expose her to public shame and disgrace and a potentially life-threatening punishment, he resolved to divorce her quietly, uh, not make a big deal of it. But when we come to verse 20, we find another unexpected turn in the story, one that not only makes the first little crook in the story look rather trivial, but actually turns the very problem on its head. So look at verse 20 with me. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son And you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. So the angel comes to Joseph in a dream and tells him what Matthew already told us back in verse 18, the part we skipped over, that Mary is with child From the Holy Spirit. That, my friends, is what you call a game changer. That changes everything. But but what does it mean? What does it mean? Well, first, it means that Mary's not been unfaithful. There's no other guy in this scenario. Rather, as crazy as it sounds, the God of heaven placed a child in the womb of of a virgin named Mary through the Holy Spirit. Second, it means that God is in fact making good on his promise to Israel that we saw recounted in the genealogy last week. After all these years, he is finally raising up a king to sit on David's throne. Notice how the angel addresses Joseph in verse 20. He says, Joseph, son of David. Joseph has the legal right to the throne of Israel. We saw that in the genealogy. It is a right that he will now pass on to this child if he takes Mary as his wife and, in essence, adopts this child as his own. So God is making good on his promise to raise up a king. Moreover, if if you notice in 
chapter 1, 22 through 23, how Matthew anchors this whole event in the words of Isaiah 7. So he's looking back to the Old Testament, back to what God had promised. And if we go back to that story in Isaiah 7, while ancient Judah, uh, under uh, King Ahaz at that time, while they were under threat of foreign invasion, two nations knocking on their door, ready to take them over, God promised to be with his people to rescue them. But Ahaz, who sat on David's throne at that time, uh, wanted to put his trust in the king of Assyria instead, uh, instead of the God in heaven. And so God promised not only to destroy Judah's enemies, but also to judge Judah and the house of David through the very person they were putting their trust in, the king of Assyria. He was going to come wipe out northern Israel and Syria, and then he was going to overflow into Judah and flood that territory as well. And to prove that God was going to do this, he gave the house of David and Ahaz a sign, Isaiah 7:14. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. He will eat curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. But before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. The Lord will bring on you and your people and on the house of your father a time unlike any since Ephraim broke away from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. So the word Emmanuel, as Matthew translates it for us in in chapter 1, means God with us. And on one level, this sign that God gave Ahaz and the house of David in Isaiah, on one level, that sign looks toward God's swift judgment on both Judah and her enemies. God is going to be with them in order to judge them. Before this child who's promised is old enough to know the difference between right and wrong, God will sweep away Judah's enemies. And by the time this child is done nursing and is ready for solids, He's going to eat curds and honey, not because that's a delicacy, but because that's all that's going to be left in the land after the king of Assyria sweeps through Judah as well. So who is this child? How do we understand this sign? Well, there's been a lot of ink spilled over that question. Some have noted how the Hebrew word translated virgin here in Isaiah 7.14 is a little bit more ambiguous than the word that's used in Matthew in Greek. Uh, it implies virginity, but it doesn't always necessitate it. And so when we see a son born in Isaiah 8, at the beginning of that chapter, who seems to kind of fulfill this sign of judgment in some ways, a lot of people have said, oh, that's the son. You know, and we think, well, maybe that's him. But the sign that God gives Israel, this sign of Emmanuel, God with us, is much bigger than God's judgment if we keep reading. If we keep reading later in chapter 8, God promises not merely to judge Israel, but also to be with them, to save them. As Assyria and the nations prepare their battle plans, God says in Isaiah 8, 9, and 10, their plans will not stand because God is with us. God is with his people, not just to judge them, but also to save them. And so that child in in the beginning of chapter 8 can't be the full fulfillment of it. We have to look for another child, which we then meet in Isaiah chapter 9, one that we have, are quite familiar with when we get to Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. For to us 
a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He, this child, will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. God is going to be with his people through a promised son who will eventually sit on David's throne. So what was somewhat unclear as we looked at Isaiah, Matthew makes crystal clear. There will be a true virgin who will give birth to a son who will sit on David's throne and who will be God with us in a way far beyond our expectations or our imagination. God is coming to earth as a child. God is coming. He's stepping into his own creation in the person of Jesus Christ to be God with us, Emmanuel. And if if we skip ahead to the end of Matthew's gospel and we look at the very last lines of it, we see that this king promises to be with us to the very end of the age. God in Jesus, God is coming down to dwell with his people as their forever king. So the angel's message to Joseph back in Matthew 1 now, it means that the child is from the Holy Spirit. Mary wasn't unfaithful. It means that God is keeping his promise to set a king on David's throne and to be with us in a special way through that king. Third, it means that because this child is born miraculously of an actual virgin, it means that this child is somewhat unlike Joseph his father, or any other person who might have had a right to the throne, in that by being conceived in the womb of a virgin, he avoids the problem of what we call original or inherited sin. So ever since Adam and Eve uh, turned their back on God in the garden, all humanity has been born with what we call a sinful nature. It's what the Bible calls it. In other words, it's not to say that we're as bad as we possibly can be. But it is to say that whatever we do, there's something sinful lurking in it. We're broken, rebellious people. Not just what we do, but who we are. That is the condition of fallen humanity. Psalm 51 puts it like this. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Now, there's something unique about this child's conception in the womb of a virgin that seems to avoid that problem. And that's crucial because, fourth, the angel's message means that through this child, God will bring about his plan of salvation for all the earth. God is setting a king on David's throne who isn't subject to the sin problem we're subject to so that that king can bring God's promised salvation. Notice how Matthew draws attention to the name that he wants Joseph to give this baby. Uh, Verse 21. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And then later in verse 25, it repeats it. And he gave him the name Jesus. In Luke, the angel tells Mary also to give him the name Jesus. Jesus is a big deal as a name. Why? Well, it's the same name as Joshua in Hebrew, 
and it means the Lord saves. Yahweh, the God of Israel, he saves. That's what Jesus' name means. Because, again, in verse 21, this son, Jesus, will save his people from their sins. Israel's greatest problem, ancient Israel's greatest problem, was not the political oppression that they faced under the rule of foreign uh, kings. It wasn't, uh, you know, disease or, or being wronged by others. In the same way, our greatest problem is, is not the way that we hurt each other or the way that we misunderstand each other, the wrong things we, we, we do against one another or the, the everyday trials that just frustrate us and annoy us. Those are not our greatest problem. Our greatest problem is sin, rebellion against God's throne in heaven. And that is what Jesus came to rescue us from. Our rebellion makes us enemies of the king. This child, born uniquely without sin, is therefore uniquely qualified to deal with our sin and to be the king through whom God makes good on his promises. Now put all of this together. What it says is that it takes a king who is both fully God and fully human to accomplish God's plan of salvation for the world. And Jesus Christ is that king. The God that we meet in Scripture is a trinity. So one God, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They are together eternal uh, and and equal in their divinity, their godness, uh, in their glory, in their substance, in their power. And the claim of this passage before us is that the second person of the trinity, the Son, humbled himself and was made into a human being by the Holy Spirit, born of a woman into his own creation, to become fully human while remaining fully God. Now, that's the claim of the passage. If that doesn't blow your mind, trying to sort that one out, nothing will. What does that mean? How does that work? This is one of the greatest mysteries of Scripture, what we call the incarnation. The Son of God became the son of Mary, and the adopted son of Joseph in order to be king and savior of the world that through faith in him we might become sons and daughters of God. Now that is hard to wrap our heads around, that idea that God would step into his own creation in that way. And I don't suggest that we can fully understand it by any means. But should we believe it? There's a question. Should we believe it? I think all of us share Joseph's temptation to look at this story and to think, this is incredible. Uh, I mean, it, it sounds like some sort of ancient mythology or maybe just sounds just plain ridiculous to us. Or maybe it's, it's kind of even fearful to think about the implications. What if this is true? What does that mean then for my life? But if it is in fact true that Jesus became fully God that Jesus, excuse me, being fully God, became fully human to save us from our sins. If that's true, then this is the biggest game changer that history's ever known. It literally changes everything about how we understand who we are, what we do, what we're supposed to do, what it means to have a, a, a significant, meaningful life 
on this earth and, and what happens beyond that. It's, this changes everything. So I want us to think together about four questions. As we try and you know ask the question, should we really buy into this claim? First, the question is, could God do this? And that's the question of possibility. Is it possible? Second, uh, would God do this? And that's the question of plausibility. Is it likely that God would do something like this? Third, should God do this? And that's the question of necessity. Is there a reason? And then fourth, Did God do this? And that's the question of history. Is there evidence? Is there evidence? I just want to think through those four questions uh, for a few minutes. First, could God do something like this? Is this even possible? Of course, some will suggest that, you know, modern science has corrected the kind of mythologies that ancient people used to believe in uh, back then. It's taught us that miracles like this don't happen. Virgins don't get pregnant. We know that now because of modern science. We don't need modern science to tell us that virgins don't have babies. Okay? They understood that full well back then. And this was just as hard to swallow for them as it is maybe for us today. But we're not talking about what's scientifically possible. We're talking about what could the God of the universe, if he exists... What could the God who made creation, including human life and bodies, who rules over creation, who has all power, if if this kind of God could cause a virgin to conceive and through her child step into his own creation as a single person who's both fully God and fully human, could God do that, that kind of God? And, of course, it shatters our categories and expectations. The answer is clearly, yes, that's within the realm of possibility for that kind of God. God could do something like that. He has the power and authority to make creation. He also has the power and authority to write himself into that story of creation if he wanted to. So, second, would God do that? I mean, just because he could do it, just because it's possible, doesn't mean it's likely. Uh, You know, For instance, God could decide just to shut his eyes to the evil and injustice of this world and ignore it. That's possible, but it's not likely because it would go against his character. It would go against his plan. I mean, God could decide to snap his fingers and turn all the humans into panda bears or something ridiculous like that. I mean, he has the power to do that. Would he do that? No, unlikely, because that, again, goes against his his design and his character so would god step into his own creation would he take on human flesh and become fully human fully god is it likely if god is compassionate slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love as scripture tells us he is if he desires to establish his kingdom on earth and that desire involves rescuing humans from their sin, uh, from their power, the power, the presence, the penalty of sin, as Matthew tells us he does, if humans are by themselves incapable of rescuing themselves, which again, Scripture tells us is the case, and if sending his eternal son to take on flesh and enter his world in order to accomplish that salvation uh, is, is something that would do that, 
well, then I think it's certainly plausible that God would do this kind of thing. If it's necessary, if it accords to his plan and his character, well, then yes, it's likely. So I think, third, should God do it? He could, he would, should he? Is, it, is there a reason? Is it necessary? And the answer is absolutely. It is absolutely necessary that God step into his creation in this way. Again, though it, it, it shatters our categories, it, the reality is it takes a king who's both fully God and fully human to accomplish this plan of salvation. There is no other way for God to do it. Because our sin as humans is against a holy and an infinite God, we've committed an infinite offense, something that we cannot make up for ourselves. You know, if, if uh, you know, I sin against my wife, uh, you know, little flowers and breakfast in bed goes a long way to kind of make that up. Not always, but, you know, we, we can kind of think about doing that on the human realm. If your offense is in, against an infinitely holy God in heaven, there's nothing doing. There's no way you, a sinful, weak human being, can do anything to make that up. And, and, only God can accomplish our salvation. Only God is the one powerful enough to actually save us from our own sins. And we heard that earlier in Isaiah 59. The Lord looked and was displeased that there was no just, justice. He saw there was no one to intervene. So his own arm worked salvation for him. God is the only one who can save. So our Savior has to be fully God. He has to be fully God. That's what scripture tells us about Jesus. For in Christ, the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. But as sinful human beings, our sin still has to be paid for. Uh, you know, if God is in fact just and holy, then sin and rebellion has to be punished. And you know, if you, if you break an item in a store, somebody has to pay for that offense, either you or the store owner. But somehow an account has to be made. And so what we, we need as sinful humans before a holy God, we, for him to be able to cancel our debt and forgive us our sins, we need a human who can stand in our place as our substitute. God couldn't send an angel to save us because an angel can't be our representative uh, or any other kind of being. God allowed Israel to use animals uh, under the first covenant, the old covenant, but those sacrifices were always pointing to something greater. Unless we have a fully human representative, one who fulfills God's plan for creation for us, since we failed to do it, one who shows us the way to live, one who serves as our substitute, giving us credit for his righteous life, and taking the penalty of our sin on himself, unless we have a fully human substitute, we can't be saved from the wrath of a holy God. We need a God, we need a king who's both God and man to be a mediator between God and humans. And that's who Jesus is. Listen to how the book of Hebrews describes it. Since the children, that's you and me, since the children have flesh and blood, he too, that's Jesus, shared in their humanity 
so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it's not the angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he may make atonement for the sins of the people. He had to become like us to stand in our place. Because he himself suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. So it's not only possible, it's not only plausible, it is absolutely necessary for God to become human in order to be our Savior and King. And so the fourth question, did he do it? Could he do it? Yeah. Would he do it? Mm-hmm. Should he do it? Absolutely. Did he do it? That's the question of history. And I can't stand here and prove to you uh, that God became human in Jesus. Like everything else. Everything else. That requires faith. But is there reason to believe? Is there reason to believe? And I think there is. But the kind of evidence that bears weight in this case, again, is not scientific possibility, but divine possibility and historical testimony. Could God do it? And what does history tell us? In the case of the Gospels, what we have is very early eyewitness testimony to what happened. With the exception of a handful of scholars on the margin of scholarship, uh, mainstream uh, biblical and historical scholarship, both liberal and conservative, place the date of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, within the lifetime of the eyewitnesses to Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. So we're not talking about hundreds of years for these kind of crazy stories to develop and then all of a sudden become part of church doctrine. We're talking at a few, about a few decades at most. And which means that had these gospels included a bunch of fanciful and inaccurate statements, they would have been easily refuted by those who uh, were still there and could have said, well, this is wrong. Long before Christianity would have ever been able to gain and rise to the influence that it's become. So we have very early uh, testimony to these things. If you apply the standards of historical reliability used for any ancient document to the Gospels, we have some of the strongest historical witness possible. And the claim of these eyewitnesses who walked and talked with Jesus, who saw him, perform the kinds of mighty acts that only God performs. You know, rebuking the wind and the waves. Who has the authority to do that? Well, if you look at the Old Testament, God does. You know, they, they heard Jesus utter statements that only God has the authority to utter. Your sins are forgiven. They were ready to stone him for blasphemy, for saying that kind of stuff. These eyewitnesses saw Jesus Christ be crucified, buried, and then rise from the dead three days later conquering death the way only God, the author of life, can. Their testimony is that Jesus, our King, was fully human and fully God, and that therefore there is salvation in no other name under heaven but Him. 
And so I want to ask us one final question. How do we respond? How do we respond? If God has done what we could have never imagined, but what we so desperately needed him to do in order to establish his kingdom, to rescue us from our sins, how do we respond to that God, that king? Well, I think we, we start with Joseph's response in Matthew 1, 24 through 25. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him. He took Mary home as his wife, but he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son. And he gave him the name Jesus. Joseph responded with faith and obedience. I think that's a good place for us to begin our response to this God who alone can give us salvation. To respond with faith and obedience. To trust in God and his plan and to recognize Jesus as our king. But I think we should also take a quick peek at Mary's response to the same news right before she conceived. This is from Luke 1, 46 through 49. This is Mary's response. My soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed for the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. Mary responds with faith, yes, but also with joy and praise. She bursts into a psalm of praise at the news of what God is going to do. God has not left us in our weakness and our sin, but in his mercy he is stepping into creation to be with us and to rescue us. That is news worth celebrating. That is a king worth worshiping. So, so we trust God. We praise God. And I think finally that this passage calls us to take, to respond with a posture of expectancy, a posture of hope that God is still going to continue working out his plan for his kingdom. If God can do the unexpected, if he can do what we could have never imagined, but what we so desperately needed him to do, then we should lean into that promise with eyes wide open to see what God is yet going to do through Jesus to make his kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And that's that kind of expectant hope that Advent calls us to, this waiting, this longing, this trusting that God is going to establish his reign on earth as it is in heaven. And so as we close, I want to pray together as a congregation with that posture of expectancy with that posture of hope that God, our King, did what he needed to do. He was fully God. He became fully human to rescue us from our sins. So let's pray together to this God. Gracious Heavenly Father, this is the hope of the Advent season. Lord, that the kingdom of heaven, that the kingdom of justice and peace of healing and wholeness, of forgiveness and mercy, of new life and joy, that the kingdom you promised to establish through your Son is coming. Lord, we wait for it. We celebrate how your heavenly kingdom has dawned in Jesus Christ's first advent, in his life, in his death and resurrection. And we look with hope 
in expectation to his return, his second advent, where he will finally and fully bring all your promises and the reign of your kingdom to completion in the new creation. Lord, come quickly and do it. Lord, we pray that in the meantime, we would live lives of faith and obedience and hope and joy. Lord, as your humble servants, as your children through Jesus, may the same spirit who made him into a human being so long ago give us strength as humans to live as your children and to live for you. We pray, Lord, that the vision of your kingdom would shape our vision and passion as a church. Uh, God, I pray that you guide our leadership, that you would use our ministries, that you would use every single one of our lives to make your kingdom known. That men and women in the Metro West, across New England, around the globe, would see King Jesus for who he is and would bow in faith and joy and hope. And Lord, we thank you for the two testimonies of new life that we celebrated today for Victoria and Xiaofeng. And pray, God, that you would continue to bless those women, give them grace to walk joyfully with you. We pray for our missionaries, Lord, as they are seeking to advance your kingdom on our behalf around the world. We think of Julie uh, and Garrett in Haiti, especially this morning, Lord. Continue to strengthen them by your grace, with your spirit. Use them, Lord, as they minister to these young girls in the orphanage, as they serve the guests in their guest home. Uh, Lord, continue to raise your banner in Haiti. And Lord, we ask that uh, among those who are hurting in one way or another, uh, whether it's relationally or financially or bodily, our health or spiritually, Lord, our hearts, we ask that the power of your kingdom the power of the resurrection of Christ would come and touch them in a healing and transforming way. Jesus, be our provision, be our health, be our guide, be our life, Lord. We ask all this in the powerful name of your Son. Amen.